Okay. It's... Hello, everyone. No, we're on now. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey, nice to meet you. And today I'm joined by my good friend, the Texas naturalist himself, Andrew Austin. <laughs> Andrew, welcome to the show. Yep, good to be here, man. Uh, a little nervous, but your first podcast is, uh, it's, uh, you're bound to be a little nervous, so see how it goes. Yeah. All right, so uh, Andrew, first tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, like what you do, how you got into yeah. birds, a little bit of your adventures in, in nature background. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm a pretty, uh, well, now I'm a pretty well-rounded naturalist, uh, but I did start with herps. Um, been field herping for, I don't know, 15 years. I'm 25. Started pretty early. I remember the first snake I ever caught. It was a uh, rough green snake uh, up in North Texas. Um, I know you've got, you guys have talked about Steve Irwin. You know, he was definitely a, a big part of my my interest in, in wildlife, uh, her, herbs in particular. Um, and, and crocodilians especially. Um, but I don't give my dad enough credit. My dad, he, he was taking me out hunting and fishing uh, at, a, at a very young age, and that definitely played a big part. Um, so, yeah, you know, I've been just going through life, you know, pursuing the dream of um, adventure and, you know, learning all about uh, herps and natural history and, you know, trying to make a living out of it. So what do you currently do for work? Uh, so I just graduated um, with my undergraduate degree in wildlife and fisheries sciences uh, from Texas A&M. Um, I graduated this uh, recent summer um, and I got hired on at an environmental consulting firm. Um, a company that basically does a lot of uh, Clean Water Act permitting, Endangered Species Act permitting. That's about half the, the company is like regulatory. And the other half is more restoration. So they do a lot of stream restoration, which is what I was doing uh, last week up in Oklahoma was more stream restoration. Um, so that's, that's what I'm up to right now. Still, um, I still, I used to work at a place called Crocodile Encounter and I still do a little bit for them, uh, which is always nice. Got to keep crocs in the mix, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it seems like I have it, have it figured out. We'll, we'll see how long it lasts. Um, what um what is a job like that like environmental consulting what does that all entail because i know like when i was getting my undergrad and everything that's a lot of jobs that you see like when you're looking for jobs and stuff is environmental environmental consulting so if like people looking for jobs what what does that entail like maybe it's to see if they're interested in that um so there is a there is a stigma around consulting like you know you just it's kind of like low hanging fruit, you know, like if you can't get a job with an agency like wild, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or um, like your local or your state wildlife agency, it's kind of like the next option is to go work for an environmental consulting firm. And a lot of them are, are tied to like these big engineering firms and they just have like an environmental department. And the higher, higher you on to um, basically uh, help them through like when they're starting a big, pro big project, they're going to develop on land you do all the, the environmental permits. So that requires going out in the field, um, you know, collecting data on the resources. If there's wetlands there, you gotta get a permit uh, through the US Army Corps of Engineers. 
And then you go through that whole process. Um, the company I work for, it's, it is, it's called Ecosystem Planning and Restoration. Um, so it is all environmental. Um, and we, like I said, about half the company is, you know, really kind of um, helping these, these, you know, like TxDOT is our main client. TxDOT is our, our uh, uh, Department of Transportation here in Texas. Um, anytime they're going to do any kind of work in a stream, like uh, building a new bridge or expanding a roadway that has wetlands nearby, um, they have to they hire us to uh, get them through that regulatory process. Um, we go out there and we survey for wetlands, which is what I do. So I'm basically I'm like a field ecologist. They send me out in the field. I uh, collect data. Um, it does, you know, it does require some understanding of wetland ecology, uh, but you, you have to know a lot about plants and soils. Uh, but for me, that's fine. You know, I've always loved wetlands. Part of the reason I always loved crocodilians is because I love wetland ecosystems. And, you know, crocodilians play such a large role in those systems. Uh, so it is, you know, uh, related to my passion for crocs, which is good. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's about it. You know, not every consulting job is going to be um, as ideal as the one I have. Because, like, half the company, we, we do a lot of restoration. A lot of, these, a lot of these firms, you end up just doing regulatory stuff, and that would get old. Um, I really prefer to do the restoration because I actually feel like I'm, you know, making a difference in the world. What 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 makes you like wetlands? Uh, wetlands. Um, well, I, you know, I grew up. Um, most of my life, I've spent in Southeast Texas, uh, which is where we have a lot of alligators native. Um, and you know, I guess you know, my passion for crocs um, plays a big part of that. Herps in general, you know, my first experience is herping, you know, I would go to the local ditch and find water snakes, you know, where I grew up, we have four species of Nerodia. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of fun to go and it's really easy herping to go find water snakes in a ditch. So I've always kind of gravitated towards, and I like fishing a lot. So that's another one. And wetlands are just, uh, they're very dynamic systems. And they're very, they provide very important ecosystem services that benefit humans, uh, you know, like recreation, clean water, and all, you know, wildlife habitat. Um, so I've, I've always sort of gravitated toward, towards wetland ecosystems. So you mentioned uh, you did work at uh, Crocodile Encounter and that you're yeah. crocodilians. Are there any other uh, crocodilian jobs or internships that you have done in the past? Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been very fortunate. Um, so the very first job I had was at a place called Gator Country, which you know a little bit about that place, Nate. <laughs> yeah, you spent some time there as well. Um, I, I was very lucky. Uh, the town I grew up in um, was a town called, town called Finette, Texas, and that is where Gator Country is located. Um, so I was able to volunteer there throughout high school, and you know meet people like. Like, uh, like Sean Heflake was one of the bigger names I met uh, in the crocodilian world that I met uh, when I was a kid or, you know, teenager. And I got some exposure, you know, hanging around uh, professionals there. And one really cool thing there, you know, aside from getting hands-on experience and doing a lot of like nuisance alligator um, stuff, um, is Gator Country had this intern program where they, you know, they have these college students come in and they stay, you know, a couple months. And I was able to hang out with these people when I was, you know, a teenager. And they kind of told me about like uh, what I need to study in college to work in natural resources. And um, cause I was never a good student. So these people kind of provided, you know, mentorship for me. 
Um, so I did, I did have a lot of value there. Um, and then I went straight to, to Crocodile Encounter after that and worked there for three or four years. And I'm still like alumni there, basically. Um, it's a really tight knit group. And I'm lucky that I get to hang around still, even though I don't work there anymore. Um, and then the, the pinnacle is, is uh, the CRC, getting to, getting, to go to the, getting to go to Belize to work with the Crocodile Research Coalition. Um, that was the, the, probably the coolest thing I've done. Did working for Gator Country as a teenager, is that what started your passion into Gators, or did you like them before then? Funny story. I, I was catching alligators long before I went there illegally. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I was a kid, so I mean, I, uh, I know the I know the alligator program leader for Texas now. So if he sees this, uh, it's no big deal. He's not going to get me in trouble. Um, so yeah, I. Uh, you know, so I lived in this town, Finette, and I was kind of known as a as a rep as the reptile guy, and all the locals around there um, weren't as inviting to someone from Louisiana coming over and starting an alligator facility, and that was Gary Sarge. Um, so he's the owner of Gator Country, and so he, you know, a lot of locals there, um, you know, weren't you know huge fans of of uh, his. So like when I moved down to Finette, I moved to Finette when I was uh, like in fifth or sixth grade. And a lot of my friends were like, no, nah, don't go to Gator Country. Uh, so, you know, I kind of just did did the alligator thing on my own, again, illegally. Don't not promoting catching alligators because it's very dangerous. Um, anyway, so I had had experience going in there, um, which is kind of kind of funny. Um, but so, yeah, I, I had interest long before going there. I just eventually. Um, so I guess in Steve Irwin, that's a simple answer. Uh, <laughs> I'll never forget. I remember, so like early on in my childhood, I lived in North Texas where we really didn't have croc alligators. Uh, it turns out now I, I've learned that there are, uh, there is a small population, uh, along the Trinity river, but I didn't know that when I was a kid. Uh, so I would, I would literally like, like take the water hose at my house and like fill up, like, like make puddles in the yard and pretend there were crocodilians in there. Like I was Steve Irwin, like going through a swamp because I didn't, I didn't have alligators. Like I, that's, and I was, you know, really young doing, doing stuff like that. And, and you didn't gravitate towards, gravitate towards any other like reptiles, like snakes or lizards or anything like that? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah snakes um, definitely are, are probably still my main passion. Um, well, it's, 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 a t it's a tough competition between snakes and crocs. They have, I have different interests in crocs. Um, like crocs are these apex predators. They're like keystone species. Um, like conserving crocs conserves entire aquatic systems. But like I like snakes for the diversity. Um, snakes are, are, are much more diverse as a whole, obviously, which is unfortunate. It'd be cool if there were hundreds of crocodilians uh, like there were in the past. But um, that's probably the, you know, yeah, so I'm interested in all, all herps. Um, but yeah, so the crocs are more just, they're just a big apex predator and, um, just an evolutionarily interesting group that are worth learning about and that sort of thing. So, uh, do you have any, uh, interesting experiences and stories from your time down at with the CRC? Um, yeah, so I've been twice now. I got, I really lucked out the first time I went. Um, and this was back, I was like their first intern. They, they, they 
when I first hit them up on on um, Facebook, they 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 were really inviting, but they they kind of seemed um, like they not unorganized, but they like didn't have a program for interns. Um, so they kind of were just like winging it, but it was like it was awesome because for one, it was really cheap when I went. They didn't like now they have you know more um, you know legit program. Uh, where it, you know, it costs a little more, it's a little more organized. Um, so when I went, it was kind of, you know, I just kind of went down there, but it, 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 my time there aligned when they were doing a nationwide survey for the more let's crocodile, um, which they, much of that was spent um, in the Chickabull rainforest. Uh, and they were surveying the McCall river um, and, and its tributaries. And so we're, you know, the really re- remote area, you know, we drove maybe three or four hours through, Oddly enough, Pineland, it looks like East Texas. And then we get to the McCullough River and you go up it. And then on the other side of the river, it's tropical broadleaf forest with, um, you know, howler monkeys and, and uh, scarlet macaws and jaguar. Um, interesting story. Before we actually went into the forest, um, we went to the Belize Zoo and they had rescued a jaguar cub at the camp where we were going to be camping at in the Chickable Forest. And so we got to see this little cub up close and, and like we can pet it, but, and it came from the very spot that we camped for a week straight doing croc surveys, um, which was, which was kind of neat. Um, but yeah, we'd go out there and we were, we were doing night, uh, eye shine surveys going out and, and counting crocs, um, and, and, you know, surveying it, you know, it's very systematic, um, going out and surveying sections of river, um, so we'd go, we'd do, a, we'd do a section of river one night, just eye shine, and the next night we'd go out and actually actually catch the crocs, which was, you know, that's where the fun is. Um, yeah. But, you know, working with, with uh, Marissa, um, she, she's, um, she's, she's a really um, good mentor of mine. I know you had her on, on, on here, I guess, a lot, two weeks ago, um, recently. Um, so she, she, you know, was teaching me all about the science and stuff, and, um, that was really my first exposure to field research, and that that was uh, that that trip going into the Chickabull Forest uh, really inspired me to 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 stick with 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 school and you know finish my bachelor's because um, that was my first real exposure to more, more actual science. Um, but it, you know, working with Marissa, she's very very serious about you know not stressing the animals out. Um, you know, we're there to, 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 to collect data and, and to ensure the animals are, are taken care of. And, you know, cause it's a very stressful process going out catching, you know, these big crocs and pulling them in, into the boat and, um, you know, collecting morphometric data and all that. Um, so it, it was overall a, a really cool learning experience working with Marissa. And, um, I've been lucky enough to go back down there and, um, she's, she's welcomed me back, um, uh, at, you know, since then. Um, so really really a cool connection for me so you mentioned uh work with morphological data so that we yeah. do with work with uh studying the hybridization between morlays and american crocodiles yes see i don't um that she has been looking at that you know for several years um and i did get to catch one um this wasn't in chickabow this was uh, so after after chickabow i went down to where she lives in placentia and where the CRC is based out of. And we went to the shrimp farm where the two species live sympatrically. And, and you, you see pure acutus, you see pure morlets, but we caught one that was, you know, obviously a hybrid. Um, and there are, there are several criteria that she goes by, you know, like a checklist. 
um, at looking at different morphometric traits and, and to, to really understand if it is a hybrid or not. So it's not so subjective. Um, but my subjective just experience was, wow, that's a, that's a definitely a hybrid. That thing is weird. You know, how, like how so was it? I mean, it, it just like the perfect had like the perfect uh, intermediate look between the two. It had traits uh, like the, 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 the scutes, um, like the dorsal scutes were, were very um, acutus, um, but like the coloration was more or less. Um, but the, you know, the head was it was kind of you know perfect, a perfect intermediate between both. Um, it was a, really a strange crog. I, I didn't know what to make of it. And it was about a six foot animal too, so I never had time to, you know, develop those traits. You know, because when they're young, it's kind of hard to tell. At least for me, she pointed out several. My last time I went. Um, we were kind of in the same area and we caught some juveniles and she, um, she considered them hybrids, but I, you know, I, I don't spend enough time to, to tell, you know, have to look, but it gets pretty detailed with the, with the juveniles and the hatchlings, uh, but the big adults are obvious. So, so. do you, um, you still do a lot of field herping now, um, just either on your own or with, you know? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I try to get out, um, every weekend, um, these days, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, you know, if it's if it's early in the year, I'm I'm, I'm mainly going after snakes and, and herbs. But I do spend a considerable amount, not to get off on on plants, but I do spend a considerable amount of time looking for rare plants, which is kind of just my I've just been evolving more into a general naturalist. Um, but one thing I will say is, if you if you enjoy, you like the natural world, and you like you know looking for rare species of, of herbs, um, you know, like any rare organism will will be enjoyable to look for. That's kind of what I've noticed about myself. I really enjoy looking for uh, rare orchids and stuff in my in my free time as well. But definitely herbs take up most of my time. That's how uh, I've actually found um, like in school or whatnot. Like I hated botany at first, mm -hmm. and then when I took a botany course, I found it to be like super interesting. Um, and yep. I always found insects to be neat, but not really that interesting until I took like an entomology course, and then I thought it was like yeah. I just coolest things in the world and stuff so definitely yep. the more you study things like if you're if, if you like you know just you know if you're if you're a naturalist type of person yeah. the more you study into things the more interesting they find what what is yeah. the you're in south texas southeast texas uh, i'm in houston yeah north yeah, houston okay. what's the herping like over there like what kind of um herps do you have you know just kind of uh, we got some neat stuff here um yeah, like if you come to Houston, you, you want to see a buttermilk racer. That that's that's one of the big ones you want to see. Um, it's, you know, it's a subspecies of you know the North American racer, uh, Culebra constrictor anthicus. They're they're like blue, but with like white spots all over them, and they're they're that they're, they're only found in scattered populations in East Texas, and the best place to see them is in North Houston. Um, so uh, one cool thing about this area is, you know, if you go like a few hours west of here, you start to get in more um, like, you know, typically Western species of plants and animals. Uh, so one, one cool thing about Texas in general is it's, you know, for one, it's big, but it's positioned where the Eastern deciduous forest kind of grades into the Western deserts. So we have really cool herb diversity, uh, but Houston specifically, you know, again, the buttermilk racer, timber rattlesnakes, um, which are declining because urban expansion is continuing. Um, pygmy rattlesnakes, although the, so the, the one species I haven't seen here um, is the pygmy rattlesnake. And it, it's a really tough one, even when they're common. Uh, 
the Western pygmy, uh, but here they're, you know, they're kind of declining. So increasingly hard to find. Um, we have Western diamondbacks. We have, there's a county south of here where you can see a Western diamondback and a timber rattlesnake in the same habitat, which is kind of cool. Um, I like, I like stuff like that. Um, you know, Western mud snakes, Louisiana milk snakes are another big one you want to, you'd want to see if you're around here. Um, you know, there are, there are roads in the, in the coastal prairies. Um, I don't know if you're, some people are familiar with Anahuac National Wildlife Refuge, but that area, you can cruise down one road and see 12 species of snakes in an hour, which is pretty solid diversity. The, um, now you, have, you guys have the Trans-Pecos Copperhead, but I think that's like um, by like the Oklahoma border, correct? Uh, so the Trans-Pecos Copperhead um, was, it was now not even a recognized subspecies, but it, it was yeah, found. I yeah, they. I still like to think of the. If you're west of the trans of the Pecos River, um, in what is known as the Trans Pecos ecoregion, um, those copperheads I still like to call Trans Pecos copperheads. You know, these these copperheads are living out, and you know the Davis Mountains and the you know the Chesas Mountains out. You know, proper desert environments. Um, they, you know, they still stick to the to the creeks and the riparian areas. Um, but they look way different than, you know, broad-banded copperhead or, a, you know, a southern copperhead. Um, yeah, let's start. Um, you got to get past past Austin a few hours um, to get to the Trans-Pecos copperhead range. Does, so. the, does the southern copperhead make its way to South Texas, like Houston area? Yeah, yeah. So they they their range follows um, the Piney Woods, uh, which is kind of just the the – the very western extent of the of the eastern forest that you know spans all of the eastern U.S. Um, so you know, once you get get out of the out of the piney woods, you get like west of Houston. It goes through like some coastal prairie and then into some oak savannas. You get to the broadbanded copperhead range, mm. um, which they they they're pretty nice looking snakes. They, you know some of them almost look as nice as a transpecus copperhead. Um, but now they're all if they're if you're west of like the Brazos River, they're just calling all that broadbanded. Yeah, yeah. And everything yeah. east of it's the eastern copperhead, but I don't know. It'll change. Taxonomy's, you know, very fluid. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, well, uh, I just like I, I'm nostalgic about my my original taxonomy that I learned when I was a kid. So Yeah, when I worked for the Kentucky Reptile Zoo, they apparently a paper came out splitting the forest cobra into seven different subspecies. Just, just oh, wow. yeah, and that's, that's yeah. yeah, I mean I'm I'm not a taxonomy junkie. I do like to keep up and I like to understand, you know, relationships between organisms and stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't obsess over the taxonomic revisions. Some of them are, are interesting and, and 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 very necessary. Um, and, and can, you know, be good for conservation. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't keep up with all of it. Yeah, it's kind of impossible to keep up with all the taxonomic changes as it is. Yeah. Well, you think herbs are bad plants or even worse. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> what, the hell, I don't know what the hell is going on with plants. <laughs> but does, does genetics. So like, I know as far as herbs, um, genetics plays the majority of the role is a lot of the taxonomy change, at least recently. Yeah, recently. Is yeah. It was morphology. Before, yeah, before. yeah. Is it the same with plants? Honestly, don't, I mean, I would think so. Um, uh, morphology probably plays, I'm honestly, I don't, I don't follow the botany literature really at all. My interest in botany is really just, 
looking for rare plants because I, my interest in plants is really just, uh, I'm really interested in like the ecosystems um, before Europeans settled, came here to the U.S. So like any organisms that represent like those, those pre-European ecosystems, um, I'm interested in. But, but yeah, I don't. I haven't really like really gotten super into botany and all the all the taxonomy with it. What makes you interested in the Colombian ecosystems? Man, I just I think I just have a longing for just um, the past, I guess. Or human? Yeah, I just it's just I just wish I could travel back in time, even just three hundred years ago, you know, and see see the Houston area. And I, I go on Google Earth and there's a bunch of there's pretty good aerial imagery from like the 1940s. And, you know, even in that, the short time span between now and then, the, the landscape has changed so much. And I just I'm looking at these aerials and I'm like, man, I can only imagine all the herps that were there. <laughs> you know, like we had smooth green snakes native to this area. Um, you know, uh, the last record was maybe 20 years ago, but they're, you know, assumed to be long gone by now because all the development of the prairies. Um, when I look at that, not those 19, that 1944 imagery, I'm like, man, I'm probably looking at prairie that once supported, you know, these rare little smooth green snakes. Um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I've always been fascinated by, um, you know, the original ecosystems that were unaltered. And there are plenty of areas, you know, and even in North America, where you can still see prairies in their original state, you know, that haven't been touched in thousands of years. Um, and you, it's all the ecological and evolutionary processes are still at play and can be appreciated, um, but they're increasingly rare, you know, and same with old growth forests. So there's, a, so there's one in particular uh, type of prairie ecosystem you introduced me to down there and along the uh, Gulf Coast of Texas that it really is a weird, unique ecosystem. You mind telling us a little bit more about that? Where do we go? It's been a while. Got to refresh. We went to the Columbia Bottomlands. I know that. Yeah, so those uh, like uh, oak mounds, is that what we call them? Oh, Mima Mounds. Mima Mounds. Is that what are talking about? Yeah. I told you about the Mima. Yeah, so Mima Mounds are just these micro t uh, topographical features, little mounds that they don't even know the origin of them, although I think they're probably associated with um, so like 10,000 years ago that the sea level rose and, um, you know, a lot of the Southeast Texas landscape was, you know, marshland. And when the water receded, um, what I think those mounds are, are remnants of old upland islands within that marsh. Um, I, I, who knows, but the only reason I pay attention to Mima mounds is because if you see them, you know, that land has never been plowed. And if the plant has never been plowed, you know, it's likely that you can see rare plants and animals, especially herps, because um, a lot of herps, you know, once that are reliant on prairies, once you plow the land, they just, you know, they disappear from the landscape. Um, so I, I, you know, I mainly pay attention to to Mima mounds for that reason to to hopefully locate, you know, rare and, and declining herp species. I like to say smooth green snakes or um, crawfish frogs, um, stuff like that. Um, you'll find associated with uh, old growth, you know unplowed prairies and, and Mima mounds are that indicator for that that type of system. So, so um, like the untouched 
you kind of past like ecosystems. Did dinosaurs at all like play a role in your getting into herbs and stuff? Like, were you into dinosaurs at all as a kid? Or yeah, I was, but I never, I never got super into them. In fact, I, I wish I knew more about dinosaurs. I really hate that I don't know enough about them. <laughs> you know, if you like, if you try to test me on like, you know, extinct crocs, I, w- I would fail the test. And I really hate that because understanding, um, you know, the early, early crocodilians can help you really appreciate the ones we have now. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I have di- dinosaurs, um, and, you know, old, you know, extinct vertebrate tax in general are, are worth learning about. Yeah. I, I just, I didn't read the article, but I saw, I saw the article. It's it the the headline just said that um, first identified winged creature was some sort of reptile that was huge or something like that. According to the article headline, I thought that was pretty interesting, but I didn't I didn't read it. So yeah, yeah, they find a lot of cool stuff. Um, and and you know these these paleontologists they they really um, help us understand a lot about. You know, extent uh, fauna that we have now. You know, um, same thing with plants. A lot of it seems like uh, a lot of what we understand about you know plant families now, plant groups now, is is a lot of it's based off of you know extinct uh, plant fossils that they that they find. Um, so that stuff is it's really interesting, but it's hard. It's hard to when 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 these scientists are trying to piece together what these what the ecology was like. You know, millions of years ago, it's it's surely a lot of it's based off of just, you know, hypothesizing. You never truly know what the landscape was like back then, but it's fun to think about though. Um, And there's plenty of, there is plenty of, you know, evidence to find in the, in the fossil record. Um, But I'm not going to get into that. because I don't know enough about that. I'm I'm starting to get get away from my comfort zone. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm more comfortable with, with uh, the here and now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, you mentioned you went up to Oklahoma. Are there like any other places you've gone herping lately outside of your normal? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this job, one cool thing about consulting is I've been able to travel around. Um, So yeah, I was up there for work up in Oklahoma. Um, I was actually working in Cushing, which is like the pipeline capital of, of uh, the U S it's like every pot, every major pipeline comes through there. Um, we're restoring a stream system for one of those companies, uh, which is kind of an interesting project. Um, so after that, I went to the Washita mountains on my way back and, and saw some really cool salamanders, um, some plethodontid salamanders, um, which are several of which were only found in the Washita mountains. Um, pretty neat. Um, let's see here. I went, I made two trips to big Ben, the big Ben region this, this year. Um, first trip, I only saw one snake. It's kind of, kind of ashamed of that. <laughs> Usually when I go to West Texas, I, I spend most of my time herping and kind of the thing to do out there, is shine cuts all night and look for gray banded king snakes and you know, trans pecos copperheads and rock rattlesnakes and, you know, many other really cool species. Uh, but this, uh, these recent trips I've taken out there, I'll, or the first one, I really wanted to just like experience the Big Bend National Park area. So I didn't, I didn't, I always had this pressure to find herps, but I, I, I suppressed that pressure and I just enjoyed the scenery. <laughs> um, and I just stumbled across a, a bear rat snake up in the Chiefs Mountains. Um, and then my second trip was pretty recent. Uh, I went out there to help film 
um, for a really cool documentary coming out. It's called Deep in the Heart. It um, it is going to be pr- it's produced by Finn and Fur Productions. Uh, a guy named Ben Masters is the mastermind um, behind it. Um, no pun intended. Um, really cool dude. You know, passionate uh, conservationist and you know cinematographer. Um, that's going to be a cool, maybe if you're not from Texas, it's going to be something to look out for. It might, you know, might end up being on Netflix or something. It's a really big, really big production. That's really covering like all the major ecosystems in Texas. And uh, for me, it was really, uh, really flattering to get invited out to help catch, catch some wildlife and help them wrangle up critters to, to film. Um, Cause they, they didn't have a lot of hurt footage and I kind of uh, stumbled upon them on Instagram and, got invited out and I've, I've helped them twice now. They came out to East Texas earlier this year and to film the, in the big thicket. Um, and then they invited me out again to help them film in, in the big Bend region. Uh, so I did find some herps then. Um, I found some, you know, some diamondback rattlesnakes. They're pretty common, pretty easy to find. Um, what else did I get? Got a snoring gopher snake, uh, black-tailed rattlesnake, which is pretty cool. Always enjoy it. Blacktails are really common out there. You know, they're such a cool snake. Um, and so it's nice when you go out to like the Davis Mountains, you're probably going to see one if you ever make it out there. Um, so it's a quality common snake. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, it's probably the coolest trip I've taken this year was that that trip out to Big Ben, helping them film. It's really neat. One of the cooler herp trips I've taken in recently. What's your favorite snake like? My favorite snake? Yeah. Oh man, you can't ask her herpers that. Man. <laughs> you, you don't like that question, Matt, and neither do you, Nate. Y'all know how that goes. <laughs> uh, man, Tim, I guess timbers. I love timber rattlesnake. For for, for a native snake in, in the Houston area, um, I would say a pygmy rattlesnake, but I've never even found one, and I'm really ashamed <laughs> about it's- that. Well, that kind of leads me to the next question. So th- that may be the answer is what, is there like a snake or, or a reptile in general that's like on your list that you really want to find that that's, that you haven't? That's, that's my, that's my white will. Yeah. I've, I've lived in their range my entire life and I have friends that don't live around here that will come and find one like the first try. And I just, I even, have you ever heard of a drift? Have you ever heard of a drift fence trap survey? Yeah. Yeah. With the, with the buckets. Yeah, yeah, buckets or, or like box traps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like I, I even ran I ran one of those last summer. Actually, right down the road from Gator Country, there's a population of pygmies. And I, I got access to a property out there, and I, I ran a, a drift fence um, all summer. Didn't catch a single snake. I guess I'm <laughs> a, ter- a terrible herpetologist, I guess, because not only did I not get a pygmy, I didn't catch a single snake. So I, it, was a, it was a hard work. I've never – that was my first time, you know, building a, a drift fence. Um, I already had the box trap. I made this box trap when I was in high school like eight years ago with two catch pygmy rattlesnakes, and it survived multiple hurricanes at my, in my Nana's garage. Um, still, still intact. So last year I went and dug it out of my Nana's garage and went out and um, – installed it the hardest part is digging the trenches for the actual drift fences that was like bust ass work in the southeast texas heat and it was all for nothing but <laughs> I, put, I put max effort into finding a pygmy um 
it's just man they they occur in low densities they're small they're camouflage their their preferred habitat is like these thick palmetto flatwoods um and they're just and they're tough i'll that's find one someday yeah maybe like, next maybe next time i uh come down there i could go with you see if we get some of that uh yeah beginner's you, luck. yeah yeah we need to mix in some some different some some beginner's luck that'll probably be what gets it for me and you still need a timber by the way yeah timber too we can get you a timber uh last time you came you know it was just wasn't the right time of year. We'll go with that. When uh, I so I live in South Florida here now, but I did live up in Georgia. And one thing that I've always wanted to catch was a timber. Um, yeah, didn't catch a timber, and um, and then I went and interned in Kentucky. And I was like, okay, this is like perfect opportunity to actually see like a, a wild timber and everything. And all sorts of people sitting there saying they've seen one. I I was out herping all the time looking for one. I had a guest even come in. Like, oh yeah, we just saw one just down the road just a few minutes ago and stuff. I never saw one the entire time. Still have not seen a wild timber rattlesnake. That Still was, haven't seen one. No. So that's, Dang, that's, that's But the my white whale here in South Florida though is a male red-headed agama. I've caught a female. Agama. Yeah, I would like to get a male because well they're super cool looking, you know. And yeah, so, yeah. And I've noticed there's always like a lot of females to like two males. And so when you find a population, there'll be, there'll be a bunch of them, but they'll only be actually like two males and they're, you know, okay, they're yeah. skittish. So they're really hard yeah. to find, but that's my white whale right now is I'm trying to grab one of those. Yeah. So, Tell well, ahead, I only have a lot of complaint about because you found Eastern Indigos growing up and I only, all I found was Northern water snakes. So yeah, Nate, you definitely got the short end of the state for, for uh, geography here. <laughs> Hey, I got cool salamanders though. You got salamanders. Hey, I'm, I need to come out for the salamanders. This my recent trip to the Washitaws made me made me realize I'm missing out on salamanders. Yeah, we got some. Uh, yeah, we got some uh, uh, not triploid, uh, tetraploid uh, unisex complexes up around where I live. Oh, that that's the that um that ambistema. assemblies. Yeah. Ambistemus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that. Uh, I believe there's a hybrid of uh, Jeffersonianum and uh, Laterali. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. Yeah, the the, pleth the plethodon out east are insane to me. The plethodon diversity, yeah. like in the Appalachians. Am I saying that right? Appalachian? Uh, I'm never yeah, feeling like Appalachian. Uh, Appala Appalachian, Appalachian. I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a dumb tech. Yeah. 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 Uh, we have there's my grandmother knows of like one creek right next to her house where there's like this one endangered salamander and I'm so embarrassed that I can never remember its name and I've never gone out to see it but it's like on a neighbor's property and never been able to get permission to go oh, out wow. it so it, it, is this right uh, I understand that the Appalachians have the highest salamander salamander diversity in the world I have not heard that but that sounds it sounds I, I've, I've heard but that at least in the U.S. it sounds right yeah. you know yeah. Uh, the only other place, I guess, would they got those uh, Belita glossid salamanders, or whatever they're called, down in Central America or South America, the ones that climb trees and stuff. Little, little oh, yeah, yeah. I think those are pretty diverse, but I, I don't. It seems like um, I, I understand the Appalachians are like top, top for salamander diversity. Yeah, well, I don't really live in the Appalachians. I actually live uh, north of there. Um, I actually don't live in the north. I live to the west of it. I live in the Appalachian Plateau. 
Okay, okay, I got you. Logically, I'm in kind of a neat spot because I'm right on the border between the glaciated and the unglaciated part of the Appalachian Plateau. Like, Which makes a big difference for the fauna and flora. Yeah, and yeah. flora, especially. That's, yeah. Just walking around, I just notice there's a complete difference in the topography of the yeah. range. I just go like two miles south of my hometown, also in topography and the geology and the like fauna and flora just completely yeah. changes. So like the, I don't know if this is right, like the Great the Great Lakes, are, those are like glacial puddles, basically. Pretty big ones, but yeah. Right? Is that right? Yeah. That just blows my mind. Blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, up north, we got entire inland seas that are just ice puddles. Yeah, that's so cool. And like where you live, you know, during the Pleistocene, you were 200 feet under ice where you live. Pretty much, depending on uh, which glacial yeah. phase. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's crazy to me, and, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was just looking at like a um recently i was looking at like the uh the temperature of the earth throughout like all of history is you know at least how we see it now and we're still in like one of the coldest parts of uh earth's history which which blew my mind and stuff i was i was looking at it and stuff and we're still like one of the coldest it's ever been and stuff it's i don't yeah. know it's crazy. um yeah we're still coming off that you know i guess off the the, the pleistocene the last ice ages, I guess. Yeah. You know, but warming from there. Yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna act like I know much about uh climate climate stuff. I like I like trying to learn about the Pleistocene though, because the Pleistocene that like set the stage for a lot of the fun we have now in North America. So like, I I try to learn about it. Um, prior to that, you know, get lost. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Pleistocene fossils. Another funny little story from my hometown. Uh, the neighbor from right behind my, I used to live in town, and the neighbor right behind my house, way back in the day, he was digging out a pond, and he stumbled across these big old uh, uh, pachyderm bones. And the people for a while, he thought it was a mastodon. Then they did the yeah. anatomy, and they looked at the records, and it turns out a circus came through way back in the day, and a couple elephants died, and that's just where they died. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. That'd be so sad. You think you got a, a mastodon or, or a mammoth, and it's a freaking elephant circus. <laughs> <laughs> elephant. That would suck. When I, um, I took a spring break trip to Orlando when I was in college, and I found a tapir tooth fossil. We were actually looking for megalodon fossils, but I found a tapir tooth. I thought that was, I thought that was like super cool. I was like, this is super rare. And I looked it up, and apparently that's like the most common fossil to find in Florida. It's like not, it's not rare at all. It's like super common. I didn't know tape tapir ranged into Florida ever. That's cool. Yeah, I, I didn't know that either. So <laughs> that's why I thought it was I'm rare. Not, I'm not surprised that like North America used to have amazing megafauna yeah. a long time ago. Like it, like, yeah, mastodon, mammoth, tapir, like all these like like saber tooth tigers and or they, they call them something else you know big 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 cats of sorts um it was a it was like the serengeti in africa but you know right here in, in north america a little nippier a little nippier yeah <laughs> you know why do you know why all that like uh went away i mean obviously yeah i mean I like there's some people that think you know early humans at played a role but then there's other people i think uh, major climatic shifts played a role right that's mm. that's, that's my understanding i, I don't know yeah, yeah, yeah I, I there's some debate 
but like there's always a debate yeah like uh did you say like all the way up to like early european settlement around east texas you could still find like jaguar and ocelot all the way to them right yeah 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 that's uh, i i really uh daydream about that stuff <laughs> have you there, heard there are... sorry I yeah. um have you heard that apparently there's a kawadi in in utah in i think a jaguar i think i heard that but at least Kawhi hey, arizona it should be arizona, arizona right is it arizona? yeah I think, I think you're thinking of arizona there's there's a jaguar they've been watching coming up across the border maybe two or three of them actually um or, or they had there was a couple and maybe one got trapped or something i think one of them actually got hunted or trapped and it's like dang there's only there's so few how did how did a hunter even manage to get that thing yeah, it's like a needle in a haystack intentional or not you know that's like crazy um unfortunate if intentional but yeah jaguar i mean just think just to think that jaguar ranged all the way up into east texas all the way up to southern arkansas it's crazy um, when, when europeans first were arriving ocelot um same thing small cat we still do have ocelot but you got to go down to south texas to see them or you're never going to see one but um there's a whole yeah yeah so the ocelot it's kind of one of our our uh flagship species for conservation down in south texas um a lot of the habitat down there that's that's being set aside is uh for ocelot but you know it's benefiting all the all the songbirds that migrate through there all the neotropical migrants um which i i listened to a podcast um with uh, the main guy that studies ocelot. He was the very first person to ever trapped a wild ocelot anywhere, but, and, and it was in Texas. Um, he doesn't like that they're use, these bird people are using ocelot as their flagship conservation species because the habitat, a lot of the habitat they're conserving isn't actually ocelot habitat. Ocelots have, are a habitat specialist. They're only found in, at least in Texas, they're only found in really thick time leap and thorn scrub. And a lot of these areas are conserving for supposedly for ocelot is really just um like you know pretty subpar habitat that birds can use mm. i don't view this as a bad thing but this ocelot researchers got some beef with the 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 bird conservationist down there apparently um which just hints at the the uh, difficulty and complexity of conservation sometimes so why do you know why the ocelot is so specialist with their um habitat range I'm not, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about ocelot ecology. Um, they're, I mean, they're, you know, they just, they're a small cat and it seems like they just are perfectly suited um, to hide among, you know, really densely vegetated areas. Um, you know, I, you know, I guess when Jaguar were still around, that's kind of like, they filled a, you know, a niche that allowed them to avoid getting eaten by the Jaguar, you know, scurrying about in the, the thick tom leap and scrub um i, I don't know I, i'm not really sure but it's interesting. yeah and they, they say there's only about 200 left down there uh, based off of you know they've, they've been this this ocelot researcher has been trapping them for a couple of decades now um so he, he has a good handle on on and on their numbers uh, but only on the ranches he's able to survey the main one being the east foundation ranch but there's a bunch of other private texas is 98 percent privately owned so there, there are multiple huge ranches like the, the king ranch a lot of people know about they own like so much of south texas and they do have a ton of ocelot habitat but this is uh one issue i've, I've learned from from that podcast with that ocelot research 
about the Endangered Species Act is is these ranchers they're scared to let ocelot reachers, uh, researchers come on their property um, because if they find ocelot, they might you know the federal government might come in and you know mm-hmm. tell them what they can and can't do. So the um, you know obviously I'm, you know I am a fan of the Endangered Species Act, but it, it appears that it is not a perfect system because it'd be really nice if we can if this ocelot research researcher could go and work on private ranches without you know and get an eye and study these ocelots and not put the rancher in a position where they might have to sacrifice their their uh, you know their the way they make their living you know their cattle industry so somehow like create a system that incentivizes finding an ocelot on your ranch or something yeah yeah like yeah re- like reward them for conserving ocelot rather than you know come in and you know try to you know, tell them what they can and can't do or, you know, whatever. And the, the reality is like King Ranch, as long as they're grazing cattle and making money off their land, selling cattle and doing the, you know, the deer hunting, the ocelots are always going to be fine there, assuming they are there. Um, but just they're never going to let researchers come in because they're scared of the Endangered Species Act and, what, you know, what that can lead to. Mm. I don't so, know. It's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So real quick, what's the name of that uh, ocelot podcast? Yeah. Uh, that was on... Um, it was on the Meat Eater podcast. Um, Steve Ranella is um, yeah. the yeah. yeah, you know Steve Ranella, and he 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 had that ocelot researcher come on to his podcast. Uh, it was a really really interesting um, conversation they had about you know ocelot conservation and you know, trying to trying to you know work with the federal government on you know not. You know, screwing private landowners over when you know people are trying to learn about these endangered species, that sort of thing. Apparently, um, there's capybara running wild in the Everglades now. Uh, that does not surprise me at all. <laughs> they don't feed the Burmese python, so the Burmese don't eat the the native fauna. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I was I was just. Um, in there, and I found this spot that it was really cool because it looks kind of like the the Serengeti, you know. But you can kayak straight through it, so it like it feels like you're just kayak, and, and the water is only like maybe maybe a foot deep, if that, you know. And and you, so it's really cool because it feels like you're actually kayaking through just land. It's it's, it's, just, a, it's, it's really a, neat. It's like flooded prairie kind of Yeah. So when I come to South Florida, you're gonna come show me around, right? No, for sure. Yeah, dude. I've been one time actually. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I went, I went down to Homestead. um, Yeah, yeah. I I went there for my senior trip. I don't know Chandler Kemenish. Are you familiar? Chandler Kemenish. Chandler's wildlife. Oh, the guy with the big YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. So I went down and hung out with him for a week. And uh, he showed me around. We went and, you know, snorkeled with alligators. And we looked for Burmese pythons, didn't find any. Uh, found scarlet snakes, mud snakes. Good time. But I, I, I didn't explore as much as I would like to. Me and Nate and another friend of ours went down for spring break one year. And uh, specifically for Burmese pythons, but just herpid in general. And uh, we found a lot of cool different lizards and stuff like that, but we saw one snake the entire week there, the mud snake. (laughs) We found two snakes. I mean, quality over quantity, huh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think mud snakes down there are kind of a dime a dozen. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pretty common. Yeah. Here it's hard to find. They're common, but they're hard to find where I live. Down there, it seems like they're not yeah, as bad. Yeah. Homestead's a cool area, though. But I, I live on the other side, so I live in Southwest. But whenever okay. I do go over to the east, I go over to Homestead because Homestead has yeah. – well, you can find Burmese pythons there, but that's where the Argentine tegus, that's where the majority of them are in Homestead. Yeah. A lot of red-headed agamas are over there and stuff. It's kind of like – it's mostly farmland over there, so in the Everglades. So it's it's a neat yeah. area. Yeah. But, I, I, yeah, I like South Florida. There's literally – all sorts of stuff just all over the place and I, it's a herper's paradise i i know if i'm not at work i'm herping or i'm fishing i'm doing one of the two but i fish fish too man they got cool fish yeah yeah it is it would be nice to experience that region um before the invasives and see you know because mm. invasives are are like so, so prolific now um a lot of the native plant animal communities are certainly suffering a little bit but if you're hurt, if you like herps, you know it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, you can literally just walk, go out in your backyard and see herps from literally all across the planet. Did get a chameleon there? I forgot about that. I got a chameleon really, where, in Homestead. In, in Homestead, yeah. What? Uh, was right it, a it was veiled. Veal. Okay. See, yeah. where I live in Fort Myers, that's where apparently the vast majority of the veiled chameleons are. Um, yeah. In most other places, is either going to be like an oslets or a panther million but uh, i have not found one yet that one's like the panthers or the the chameleons there are like um they're like they're like fishermen you know once you find mm -hmm. a spot no one will tell you where they're at and it's really hard it's to find. weird it's yeah. like an invasive species and people are you know i've learned recently peacock bass are managed by the florida fish and wildlife i didn't know but, there's there it seems like Florida cares more about peacock bass than their native largemouth because you can only keep, you can only harvest one peacock bass, um, yeah. whereas largemouth you can harvest five. The limit's five. I guess yeah, they, I, they peacock are, are so valuable for um, like the fishing, recreation, and the, you know the tourism dollars that come from that that they're ma managing them more intensively than native fish. <laughs> Yeah, well, that yeah, well, that's interesting about the whole management thing. Is you know, where's the money go and who produces yeah. the money? But yeah, I, I I was just showing a friend around last week, and he specifically wanted to peacock bass fish, and so yeah. we didn't catch any peacock bass. But there was a lot of uh, I've caught one before, but we didn't catch any this time. There was a lot of cichlids though. Oh, um, I actually didn't catch any fish the entire week. I hate fishing with them because every single time we go fishing, we never catch anything together. Like if I'm by myself, I catch stuff all the time. But whenever we're together, can't catch a thing. It's super annoying. So. Dang, man. Well, better get it together when I come down because I want to catch a peacock bass. Well, yeah, for sure. Well, depends when you come down because uh, in a few months, dear old Matthew boy will be in a, on a completely different continent. Oh, yeah. No, next, wow. June, next June, I'll be in Australia getting my master's degree. So. Oh, man, that's awesome. I know. I'm super excited, actually. When, when do you start? Again? Uh, it's like next June. Next June? Yeah. Nice, man. Um, where, at and, where, you, where at and what, what are you going to study? Yeah, the uh, it's at the University of Queensland, which is uh, – so it's located in Brisbane. And um, so it's right at the, the foot of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, wow. So that's super cool. And it's a master's in conservation biology. So that's awesome. Specifically, I want to do a lot of, well, I want to do reptile research, but um, 
I would like to do invasive reptile research, like uh, studying like Burmese pythons and stuff like that down here. I think that'd be super neat. So, yeah. or I might stay over there and do something, <laughs> see how it goes. Yeah. But, um, but, but yeah, I'm actually super excited about it. Um, but you should definitely. Come what did you do? For yeah, yeah, dude. I, I, Australia's been been uh, on my mind a lot lately. Um, you know, it used to, I wanted to go there to see all the alapids and monitor lizards and, you know, the big salties, but man, there's so much more there too. There's oh yeah, like just herb diversity in general, you know, a lot of cool lizards, the orchids, awesome orchids there. I want to see beautiful landscapes, the mammal diversity. It might be the coolest place in the world for, for biodiversity. I really, I really think that might be the case. Just I know, like why. weird stuff out there. Especially the mammals. Oh yeah, yeah. I, yeah. That, that's why. That's why I might end up staying there, just because. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like carpet pythons are apparently a dime a dozen over there. So it, I'd like. Yeah. To like rats next year. Yeah, yeah. Monitor lizards <laughs> are my favorite by far reptile, and so um, I'm going to be in heaven over there. <laughs> so, There's tons, of, like tons of varanids over there, right? Oh yeah, Yeah. And like yeah. all like the Python diversity is cool. Like, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff there aside from the lapids and the crocs. There's yeah, apparently a lot of like, Australian water dragons, which are super cool looking. I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen one of those, but those are neat. Yeah. Like uh, the one Aussie herp I feel will probably be surprised I want to see would be the freshwater crocodiles. I mean, everyone oh, freshwater crocs, man. Yeah. Everyone always yeah. talks about salties. Like all, all the Facebook groups I'm on, all the Australians, all they talk about is salties. Yeah. And to me, I don't get it. Like you and I, we both know Dieter, and we both know he, compared to other crocodilians, he doesn't really hold salties in that high regard. Yeah. But, so it's all, it always kind of amuses me that Aussies go on and on about salties, even though they only make up a fraction of their range in Australia. When they have. Yeah. An endemic species found only there that is so much more extensive throughout their continent yeah. than salties. Yeah, are. and the cool thing about freshies is 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 you can actually get out in the river and if you find a clear river, you can go snorkel with them and be perfectly safe. Yeah, and they gallop too. Yeah, yeah, and they gallop. Yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget seeing that on on the crocodile hunter. <laughs> yeah, that, that footage of, of one taken off on land. Where did you um? Where did you snorkel with um? alligators down here in uh in homestead uh that was uh, a big cypress loop road oh oh really so you, you yeah. in that, um in that little yeah. stream oh yeah man Alli so many alligators it was actually okay. a little eerie and, at times <laughs> yeah that, that's that's interesting because i go down loop road all the time because there's so yeah. many alligators and snakes i mean what, what go, snakes do you find there Mostly water snakes, but um, a bunch of brown, brown water snakes and stuff. Yeah, mostly those. Uh, yeah. I found a couple like scarlet king snakes and other stuff, but mostly mostly water yeah. snakes. But um, yeah. yeah, I'll go over there like after work, and then uh, wake up early in the morning and bike down the road and stuff. And you, when you bike, you go slow enough to where that you'll see all sorts of stuff that you would have missed if you were like driving and if you're on in a car. Yeah. The um. <laughs> That's interesting though, because I've never seen the water like much to snorkel in um, along that road. So that's really cool that you're able to like snorkel in. That yeah, 
Yes. So um, Chandler, he, he used to do it all the time and, and the water's, you know, it's real clear. And yeah, um, it, you know, you don't go you know, encouraging people to do this. I mean, they alligators are, they're so, um, you know, they're so laid back compared to some of the other crocodilians, but they're still large, dangerous, you know, animals. But you I mean, when you get in the water with them, like the whole goal for that trip was to get like footage underwater with an alligator. Cause it was like a childhood bucket list thing. I remember Steve Irwin went out to South Florida. Uh, actually, it may have been somewhere else in Florida, but he went out and he, he snorkeled with alligators in one episode. And uh, ever, ever since I'd saw, seen that when I was a kid, I was like, I got to do this someday. So it was like a childhood bucket list thing to go do that. And it was actually really hard to get footage with an alligator because they were so skittish. It's like they see this large mammal underwater and they're like, what, what the heck is going on? Um, so it actually took a lot of effort to get close enough to one to actually get the GoPro and actually get a picture of me with, with an alligator underwater. We finally did get it, uh, but it took a while. Um, man, it was, it was really neat. It was, uh, I, I want to do that again someday, especially now. Um, you know, I've learned quite a bit about crocodilian since then. I feel like I would appreciate it even more uh, getting to, you know, experience alligators, you know, in that underwater environment. Um, so maybe if I go out to South Florida before you leave, we can go do that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. About the crocodiles down here is they're either like super skittish or you could get like as close as you want to them and they won't do anything. Like um, yeah. sometimes I'll be, I'll be biking, you know, down that road and they'll be sitting on the side of the road because um, it's early in the way the sun shines, they're basking and everything. Yeah, so, yeah. And I could get up right next to them. And take a picture or whatever and they just kind of sit there like whatever but, then, but yeah. other than, other than if you get like anywhere close they'll like immediately bolt so but yeah um, most of the um like juveniles and stuff if you see those they'll usually immediately turn and run but um just yeah. last week i was actually at lover's key and i came across one and i was kind of slowly coming up to it in my kayak and it just sat there, and I went like right up next to it, like the boat went right up against its nose and everything. It just kind of sat there, and, yeah. um, and then I shifted my arm and it bolted. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was pretty cool. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. That reminds me. I, I've been. Um, there's a place called Brazos Bend State Park, which kind of reminds me of you know some places in Florida where there's just alligators stacked up everywhere. And so I've been. I used to go out there all the time. It's it's really close to Crocodile Encounter. And when you go out there during the daytime, you, you like you'd be walking down a trail and there's alligators all over the place and you, you, they don't move, they don't care. Mm. Uh, but I've been going down there um, a couple times a summer helping a buddy with research. And we got there at night. The alligators behave totally different. They're hard to catch. Yeah, it's it's so strange. They're like, "What are y'all doing out here at night? You know, you're not supposed to be in my in my swamp right now." Um, <laughs> like the first time I went, we did pretty well, uh, but I, I did have to use my rod and, rod and reel a couple times. Um, and, you know, cast a small treble hook and snag them and uh, carefully reel them in. It takes a while. Um, you know, we, we got, you know, uh, quite a few, but the most recent time I went, we didn't catch one night. We didn't catch a single alligator. It's like, they just like disappeared. They behave totally different at night um, versus the daytime, but we can't go out there during the daytime because it's a really popular state park and, um, the, the research um, requires, you know, some surgical procedures um, to get uh, fat tissues, and you can't be doing that in the public eye, in the public view. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of interesting, you know, those animals, you know, they're 
clearly aware of, you know, um, you know, when, you know, people and, you know, um, abnormal behavior because they, they, they behave differently at night. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's there. That's something. So uh, I'm more of a, like a lizard guy. A lot of our yeah, guys yeah. have been um, crocodilian people. So it's been, yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been nice to kind of learn. Cause that's the group I probably know the least about. Yeah, um, yeah. And something, something I'm really finding out is how um, socially, well, just intelligent they are, I guess, is just Crocs, the wrong yeah. word to use there, is they're very yeah. aware. So hey, it's very Who do you got? You got monitors or, or crocodilians with intelligence? Well, most of our guests have been saying crocodilians. I'm going to yeah. say monitors, though. So. You're going to say monitors? <laughs> You got to take it from Chris Dieter. Chris Dieter's worked with both for for decades, and he, yeah. he goes cross. He goes cross. Yeah. He goes. I think, it's, uh, it's, I think um I think they're they are uh, they have different types of intelligence. Yeah. You know, we, like we have this human view of intelligence, and it's you know, um, but like you know, these are these organisms are so much different, and you know how they like their version of intelligence is just so much different, and how we interpret that is you know probably skewed. Um, yeah. To me, crocodilians, they like they're they're so um, like methodical and like they they learn the behaviors of their prey and um, they're very habitual and you can you can like train them to do certain behaviors through you know uh, uh, you know positive reinforcement with food and uh, I guess like monitors I've seen videos of them like using their hands like reach into holes and like like that grab food. Like that's, that's just like a different type. They're just like different types of intelligence, I think. Something you know. I've been doing a lot of reading on that, and well, just intelligence in general. And one thing I found is that we really don't know like what it is specifically, because like you talk to different people of different scientific disciplines, and they'll tell you like different things. Like I found, um, like psychologists, they'll say that like the iq test is the true test for like intelligence and that's you know that that's that's like the standard and stuff whereas like yeah um like a lot of animal behaviorists will say like uh it's brain size relative to body size or no, body weight yes. and stuff and so you can draw like a line of best fit you know you can plot that on a graph and draw a line of best fit and those above it tend to be more intelligent and stuff whereas like geneticists will say it's like I don't know. I read this really interesting book, but I, I can't do proper justice to it. But it was really interesting on how, like, they define how intelligence is interpreted. So yeah. Um. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think right. Intelligence. I think you know we just don't have like a, a the best proper way to analyze, especially in animals. You know, let alone humans. Yeah. Can really properly do it with humans. So it, it could just be uh you know cro Crocs versus monitors could be problem solving ability versus memory ability. Mm. You know, croc memory monitors problem so I don't know. Just uh, that just occurred to me. Yeah, but I guess from my granted limited, highly limited experience working with both. Oh, I'm actually probably working with crocs more than monitors, surprisingly enough. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Monitors, from my experience, are like really quick and active and really alert. They yeah, probably really quick to notice something. Whereas crocodilians, they are kind of like laid back, but they're kind of like the sit back and really think something through and kind of tell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very calculated, very calculated animals. 
Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say is at the very least, monitors at least appear to be more intelligent just because they're, like you said, they're more active. More active. You see them like figuring and thinking. Whereas like crocodilians, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas like crocodilians, they look like they're just kind of like they're not thinking when they, they are. Yeah. Stuff, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Best comparison I can make is uh, monitors are Tyrion Lannister with a quick comeback, but crocodilians are Tywin Lannister with a del delicate plan. Yeah, <laughs> little game. Of I, well, You're probably the only one here balls that, but yeah, honestly, I didn't get any of that. But no, that's <laughs> it was good. It was good. Those Game of Thrones fans out there, they're going like, yes, exactly. But yeah, when well, something I, I always that. thought, something that I always thought is that monitors are more like socially intelligent and complex. But talking with a lot of these crocodilian researchers, is, you know, I'm finding that crocodilians are. Um, pretty socially complex themselves, despite yeah. not seeming that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. My intuition would say Crocs definitely win as far as social social behaviors. Um, well, you know, some of the Crocs, especially alligators, um, are very vocal, um, and you know they have other other cues that they use. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly don't know much about monitors. But I, my vibe is that like monitors aren't vocalizing to each other <laughs> you know i'm assuming there's no monitor that vocalizes i, I think there's some that, i think there's some that do some vocalizing but not like in the way not to like communicate yeah. in the way that crocodiles do in any way so yeah 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 you see like you know crocodilians a lot of them you know they do the bellows the courtship bellows and then the juvenile make various noises and uh, Chinese alligators have the craziest vocalizations. That was yeah. one, of the, yeah. one of the coolest things I've got to do was work with Chinese alligators at Crocodile Encounter, and you know, he hearing. Um, so, like every morning during during like sort of the breeding season, our, our American alligators will bellow, and our little male Mushu he'll bellow back at them. His bellow is like it's more like a bark. It's, it's like, the, it's like a, I call it the Chinese alligator bark. Um, it's like a grunt. really. It's like a grunt. Yeah, it's like a little grunt. Man, they make strange noises. I, I can't even. I wish I can, like, you know. I, I'm not gonna try to reenact them, but <laughs> like the female, the female, like when the male and the female Milan and Mushu um, are main breeding. I say ours. I, I don't work there anymore, but I still claim them as mine because I work with them a lot. Uh, when male, when the when Milan and Mushu would like vocalize to each other, they, they made some strange noises that I've never heard in American alligators. Um, really, really interesting animals. Um, but yeah. The, um, when I took my trip out to uh, Orlando, when I found the tape, actually the same day I found the tapir tooth, we saw this um, alligator just in this little pond, just one alligator. And uh, me and my buddy are running around to the other side of the pond to get a better look at it. And as we pass, there's, there's a smaller puddle off to the side. And as we pass, my friend goes, hey, look, man, it's a big lizard. And I look over and it's a little baby alligator sitting there. And I was like, oh. So I pick it up and uh, we're kind of taking pictures with it and everything. And it starts to make that chirp noise. And they're like, yeah, uh, yeah. They're like what, why, why is it doing that with it? And I was like, well, that's probably its mom. They're probably calling its mom because some strangers are picking it up. They're like, uh, should we put this down now? I was like, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it was all good. It was pretty funny. One thing, um, yeah, doing a 
doing shows at Crocodile Encounter or Gator Country, you know, we use baby alligators and when they call, people get really sad. They're like, oh, it's calling for its mom. Like, no, this is just, this is a, a, a an instinct that this animal has. It, it doesn't, at, at this point, it doesn't know its mom and the mom doesn't know it. You know, it never actually interacted with its mom, in fact. Um, uh, yeah, it's something I, I've encountered while doing the, the educational outreach. And people like so, place their emotions on these animals. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's one thing that I've found to be tricky is um, finding that balance between anthropomorphizing while also trying to figure out. You know, yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm alluding to. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm well, alluding to. So the um, so the chirping. Do you think um, that it's just a? Do you think they're actually trying to communicate something with that chirp, or do you think it's just the natural chirp for its mom, despite it not knowing its mom? If that makes sense. I think that's just, I think it's just, um, just a behavior that is programmed in, into them. You know, when they're yeah. stressed, they chirp. That's just it. Yeah. You know. uh, yeah. I remember while uh, working at Crocodile Encounter, we make that little, uh, that noise. Yeah. Yeah. That one there. And yeah. we always make all the American alligators turn on a dime and zoom in on us. Oh yeah. And like oh, yeah. heard a youngster in distress, but as soon as you get around a Chinese alligator, yep. they straight up attack the fence. They hate yeah, that. yeah. Uh, Milan, the female, not the male, only the female would would attack the fence. Um, the, the last last time I was at Crocodile Encounter was uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before. I was looking at so we have uh, another male now, and they're all together. Yep. And I was looking at, I was looking in there, I was like, I was like, who is that? And someone said that's Milan. I was like, that's not Milan. So I, I go, and she came and attacked the fence. I was like, all right, that's Milan. You know, that's yeah. how I know it's her. You know, she's well, she uh, hates that noise. Well, uh, to tie back to the whole monitor crocodilian debate, uh, one thing I do know is uh, crocodilians are the only extant reptile with a highly developed cerebral cortex, whereas that's significant. Yeah, yeah, whereas monitors don't really have that so much. And I mean, yeah. just the whole anatomy of crocodilians is really yeah. weird. They're probably the had the craziest anatomy and physiology of any uh, tetrapod alive today, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that, another point for crocodilians there. I mean, they're the oldest, you know, extant reptile. I mean, they've been around for forever, so it's like, um, yeah. you know, I, even like the modern do what. Like modern crocs in their current form have have looked this way for you know a very long time is my understanding yeah which is great yeah. which you know well, one is crazy but two i mean it just kind of shows you how you know it, impressively they're built so. yeah and this is the perfect the perfect um you know they feel this perfect niche where they, they mastered it you know i guess some crocs were terrestrial, some were fully aquatic. The ones that lived on were the the ones that that did both kind of. You know, they hunt at the land water interface. You know, they still can run on land a little bit, but they, you know they retreat to the water and uh, sort of semi aquatic. Um, and those are the ones that it'd be cool if we still had terrestrial crocs. You know, that would be pretty yeah. cool. But they didn't survive the they didn't survive the mass extinction. Um, well, so there's something to be so said about the 
I think there were actually some uh, post-KT extinction terrestrial crocodilians like in South America and Australia, actually. And actually in Europe. Wait, say, that. say that again. Uh, just from what I've uh, done, I've done some researching and reading on it just because yeah, yeah. I'm a nerd and find that interesting. But yeah, I know that there are some actual apex predator, uh, fully terrestrial crocodilians after the KT extinction, like in uh, Europe. Oh, wow. That's cool. In North America, South America, unsurprisingly enough, and of course in Australia. That's awesome. And like all in like three different families, I believe, as well. Oh man, that's really badass. Yeah. You have to, you so have to send me send me some of that stuff. Yeah, I think the, Yeah, yeah. Uh North the northern hemisphere one is like I think it's called Boversuchus, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And the South American family was uh Sebecidae and the Australasian family was the Mecosuchinae. So gotcha. I don't know why it is that we don't have terrestrial. No, go ahead, go ahead. I wonder why it is. You're all kind of lagging a little bit. Am I lagging? Uh, you're not lagging on my end, but I can hear us lagging on your end. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And Nate, you're good. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was just like, man, I wonder why we don't have terrestrial crocs anymore. I don't know. Climate change and mammalian competition is my best guess. It's got to be cli climate climate related. Yeah. Got Cuban crocs. They're close enough. Yeah. You look at their legs, man. Those things those things can run on land, man. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And uh, 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 Smooth Front came in. The Schneiders. Uh, and Osteolamus. And Osteolamus, too. Yeah, those. it's like the smaller crocodilian, the more better they are suited to be on land. So. Yeah. Like uh, I'll never forget. Uh, like, uh, like Trichinotus actually has like a slightly siphodonic teeth actually instead of the typical peglet, the typical peg crocodilian teeth. There's actually a slightly yeah. compressed, and they actually have the proportionally smallest, shortest tail for any crocodilian. So that actually helps them balance on help the girdle a little bit better. You, you can almost start to view them more as a, a semi-terrestrial species. Yeah. Because they just yeah. live out in these like, never... little tiny poles in the middle of the rainforest. And most so like, cool, man. Times now, walking around on land at night, like climbing up in bushes and stuff like that. So I, I remember seeing a um, a picture of – it was uh, – I think it was Matt Shirley, whatever. Whoever runs a Project Mesostops um, thing in, in West Africa, he was studying Mesostops and, and Osteolamus. I think it was Matt Shirley, whatever his name is. Anyway um, – he posted on his Instagram a picture of a an osteolamus foraging around a village far from water, eating insects. Or maybe it was a video. I was like, man, that thing is that is a terrestrial croc, right there. And just like they feel almost just like the same role as a as a paleosuchus. Really neat. Something I found interesting. I um, there's this video series of. Um, of uh that just does like um biopaleontology and stuff like that and they're talking about so something people a lot of time talk about is like could titanoboa and some of these like larger reptiles still exist and stuff like that and uh one thing that the videos you're just talking about is they existed because of that thermal maximum in the earth's history when the earth was like super hot and because yeah, it was yeah. super hot, it allowed them to grow so big. And then now that it's not so hot, there's there's a limit to the size. So. Yeah. 
I found, I found that super interesting because that was always something I was like, oh, well, I doubt they're still alive, but I, I don't see why they couldn't be. But, you know, when you're something like yeah. that, you're something like that. No, they couldn't. <laughs> like, in, in Earth's history, when it was really warm like that, they're also huge plants, you know, like ferns the size of redwoods and shit. Or maybe not that big, but like tree ferns were like prevalent at different times in Earth's history when it was much warmer. Yeah, really interesting. Like, uh, freaking giant sloths. And all giant sloths, sloths, yeah. Yes, North there America had a, had a ground sloth, big ground sloth. Yeah, apparently I just watched actually a video series of the same same paleobiology um, thing that was talking about sloths and how they used to be, well, you know, how they used to be big, but also how they, they went from like being on land to like being like there was uh, a subspecies of them that was like almost exclusively in water. And so oh, wow. they, they'd like hold on their claws to hold on to like kelp and eat the kelp. And then, um, so I don't remember, it was all having to do with how the climate changed and everything like that, that they went from one to another and then ended up just in the trees and they've stayed there ever since. So, is this PBS Beyonds you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I follow that. It's a good channel. It is, yeah. I enjoy it. I just want to point out, like, when we, when we talk about like paleo stuff, man, our. our our experience of the world is, is just such a small, a small, tiny little glimpse. And like, I feel like there's so much we don't know. It's kind of humbling, but it's also like frustrating. I, w- I wish we like could travel back in time and see a ground sloth, you know? Yeah. It's so like, cool. Yeah. I, have, I'd want to see Titanic Boa. Just, could you imagine coming face to face with a snake that huge? It's insane. Yeah. I actually don't. I, I've actually I don't know much or anything about. I don't think I've ever heard of that species. Oh yeah, it's uh. I well, I first came across it as a kid in the documentary, and it showed yeah. like the vertebrae of one, and it was like the size of like an elephant vertebrae. I was like, "There's no way oh that came from a snake." Insane, yeah. It was huge, and but yeah, they they. I don't remember the exact size, but um. They have good fossils of those. Yeah, yeah. There's there's uh vertebra fossil mostly yeah. no um, no head no skulls i think they actually found a bit of skull material a little bit really? maybe yeah i think it's yeah. like kind of anaconda ish but yeah yeah that's cool not surprising what what continent are, were they found on northern south america northern yeah. south america yeah. got got to be a, a boa boa of some sort yeah yeah that's what they basically said there was some sort of boa so but it's yeah. It's but speaking insane. of, uh, but speaking of like, uh, northern South America, that place uh, actually, I think it's what, like Miocene, northern South America actually had the highest recorded diversity of crocodilians that like 13 different species. Jesus. In the same exact, like, same exact uh, region and all the, like the same region, like all the different overlapping ecosystems in that region. They're like, there's aerials, there's crocodiles, there's caimans. That's awesome. It's crazy. It's a damn shame that there's not there's not such a place now where you can go see 13 species of crocodilians. Well, got a St. Augustine alligator park, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is a if you were gonna go to one one place, country or continent, to see the most crocodilian diversity? I guess you got to go to South America, huh? For caiman. Probably like Venezuela or Colombia, because then you can yeah. get like American and Orinoco in there as well. And you get the yeah, and then you get the Cayman. 
three or four species of caiman there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess Southeast Asia, get a, I don't know, Salties, New Guinea, Siamese, I don't I know. Like, I think like Central Africa, you might get like a, a West African, Nile, and one one of whatever species or subspecies of dwarf. Yeah. But, it's got to be, South America's got to, it's got to be the place to go though if you want a maximum number of species of crocs. Yeah. Yeah, man, it'd be cool to see an Orinoco in the wild, wouldn't it? Oh, oh yeah, the Orinoco's they have a uh, crocodile encounter, just such such an amazing species. I never saw them before yeah. in my life before I went there, and, and I saw them the first day, and I instantly just fell in love with them. The first moment I man, saw them, I almost got tore up by an Orinoco twice. Yeah, I don't know. We had um, uh, we had so we got. We had our the two Coco and Loco, and it, it started to get to the point where Dallas World Aquarium was sending us all their big adults because they didn't have room. And I think it was it was either Rosalita or Andrea who was named after me. Um, when they first came down, they had they were in a box. They weren't taped up, but they had to um, get pit tags in them just as an identifying mark. And so they had me get on. It was um, me. It was Chris, Luis. They had me sort of get on this animal right outside the box and just like just to get the tag in really fast and release it. Didn't work out very well. The animal freaked out. You know, teeth are flying all over the place. They're so strong. Like these, these are six foot animals, and you would think I could just like sit on them, like a six foot alligator, no problem at all. Untaped, you sit on them, put a pit tag in. Ornocos, they're like slippery. They're strong. I have a lot of respect for them. I almost got tore. And Luis saved me. Luis came in and like, you know, hey, do you know Luis Siegler? Uh, no, I do not. Have you heard the name? He, he's the one that has has been breeding Ornocos at Dallas World Aquarium. He is the man for Ornocos, and he he um he's kind of like the the liaison for uh, you know connecting with those guys in Venezuela to release uh, Captain Bread. Uh, has started to crop uh, Orinoco's back into the Orinoco basin. Um, so he, he's the Orinoco, I mean, him and Alvaro, whatever his last, Alvaro is a guy from Venezuela. Um, them two, they, they work together. Is he the guy that Alvaro's after? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah Alvaro's such um, a big rock. Right. Big dude. Um, he's massive. If you've seen him, did you see him this year? Uh, I, when I was down there, I was walking around and all I saw was his head sticking out of the water and not, oh, man. when he comes I out of the mean, water, he's put on a lot of mass. I'll say that he's put on a lot of weight. Chunky. He's a big dude. He's chunky. He's still getting after it. His head is massive. I can't believe how big his head is. we got to move him inside here soon. That That's going to be exciting. Getting yeah, him back in the indoors for the winter. Yeah. I got to send you a picture. I took him when he was indoors of just his head and, I'm kind of proud of that shot. To be fair, I mean, I don't know how it compares to your professional photography, but picture of that. Man, when you got an animal that impressive, it doesn't matter what camera you have, to be honest. Just my cell phone. Yeah, yeah, even a cell phone. Disposable um, camera. Yeah. <laughs> There's limits. That was uh, man, we got. We got like 12 Orinocos now at Crocodile. Like a couple of juveniles came in recently. I think there's 
like 12 or 13 now. Yeah, yeah I just transported uh, back in October. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I thought I heard some more came, smaller ones. Yeah, and I transported Salty down there once as well, the six-foot. Yeah, I remember that. That's, but, uh, that's the last time. Last time we heard was for that when you came for that, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That that croc is doing well. Apparently it's grown a lot. Yeah, I've seen it. Like Dieter told me about it. It's like growing like two feet in length and it added like, yeah. like, like 100, 200 pounds like a year. That's the this, this subtropical environment we get down here it makes a big difference versus, difference. you know. Yeah. Difference between eighth grade and ninth grade, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it'll be cool when those those salties get big. Yeah. Well, uh, Matt, you got any other questions? Uh, no, I don't think so. This has been fun, though. Yeah. Yeah, man, I I've enjoyed the heck out of this. Yeah, yeah it's been fun. Yeah, this is the way. This is yeah, just like. Just having a fun conversation and record it, you know, that's the way to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'll definitely have yeah. to come down here in Florida and check out everything that's down here. Yeah, man. Yeah, and then when you go to Australia, I'll be, I'll be uh, hitting you up. Yeah, definitely. Well, like, for sure. uh, me and uh, that other guy we went to Florida with are already tentatively planning on stopping by when he graduates down there. So. Yeah, man. Maybe we get you an extra plane ticket. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We're, the plane tickets are cheaper than I was expecting, but the, the flight time is insane. It's like 20, anywhere between like 24 and 26 hours. It's insane. Jesus. I can't imagine being on like a plane where you couldn't like lay down flat or like, you know what I'm saying? It's for 24 hours. That freaks, that freaks me out a little bit. The longest flight I've had was two hours and I was getting a little antsy. <laughs> <laughs> longest I've been on was, three, that was three, three and a half, three or three and a half hours long. And as long as I, I you know, I watched two movies and I was fine, but <laughs> I yeah. almost, I, I forgot my earbuds actually. And so I was like, I don't know how I'm going to be oh, able to sit nuts. there with nothing to do for three hours, but I ended up <laughs> getting the little crappy ones. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Man, I had a great time. Thanks for having me on, Nate. Yeah, yeah no well, fun. Thanks for having nice me. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Till next time, guys. See yep. Sounds good.